Well, if you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn to the second chapter of the book of Joel, give you an extra second, might not uh, be able to find Joel quite as easily as you do Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or some other book. One of the minor prophets, we are going through a short, a brief series in this book. I think it's a timely book from the minor prophets for us to look at at this time uh, with our current circumstances. Not that our circumstances compare uh, thankfully to his day, but I think there are some parallels and things for us to draw lessons from. But if you found the book, if you found the chapter, we're going to look at, Lord willing, Joel chapter 2. We're going to read the whole chapter, and Lord willing, we're going to go through the whole thing uh, today. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word. Joel chapter 2, it says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains. A great and powerful people, their like, has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the the weapons. They are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage of reproach a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you shall be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. 
I will remove the northerner from among you, uh, far from you rather, and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray once again and ask God to bless his word to us today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, We know that uh, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so we ask that you would feed us today, Lord, that you would make us grow in our faith. Give us understanding, work in us by your spirit as always, and give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, the sound of a trumpet blast, as is mentioned in the first verse of our chapter, uh, that's a theme that you might be surprised to know, trumpets, sounding of a trumpet, a trumpet blast, those kinds of things. That's a theme that is found throughout the scriptures, not just in books like Exodus and Joel, but all the way through to the book of Revelation. In fact, this morning in Exodus 19, the reading that we had earlier in the service mentioned a trumpet blast. And the trumpet get, getting louder and louder so that people, I think even even says Moses, was uh, afraid. And, uh, you know, the scriptures in, in Revelation also use the same kind of, of imagery. Trumpet blasts were used in order to gather the people for a solemn assembly and for worship. Again, Exodus 19 and our chapter this morning. Uh, trumpet blasts were also used to sound an alarm in the, in the case of an invading army. And things like that. Ezekiel chapter 33 may be a familiar text to many of you. It speaks of the watchman on the wall and what was his, what was his role to do? What was he supposed to do? The watchman was to blow the trumpet if he saw an invading army 
coming. He was to blow the trumpet. He was supposed to warn the people of the army that was coming, the invasion. And so in Ezekiel chapter 33, what does God do? God compares his prophet, his ambassador, his spokesman, to that watchman on the wall. Uh, He was to, in a sense, blow the trumpet and sound the warning to God's people so that they might turn and repent of their sin and turn back to God. And so if the watchman, Ezekiel says, if the watchman fails to warn the people, they would die, they would suffer the, the invasion, but who, whose blood would, would who would be responsible for their blood? The prophet would. I'm paraphrasing. He says, if, if you fail to warn them and they die, their blood is on your hands. If you warn them and they, and they, they fail to repent, but you do warn them, uh, their blood is on their own hands. And so the, the prophet, God's watchman on the wall, uh, must, must warn the people when God tells him to do so. And, you know, in fact, you might know that that same language from Ezekiel 33, the same kind of picture is used by the apostle Paul, uh, in, in Acts chapter, in Acts chapter 20. There he was meeting with the Ephesian elders the last time he thought he was going to see them before he went, uh, to go to, to Rome and Jerusalem and, and it says in Acts 20, verses 26 to 27, he tells them, this is a, it may sound like a weird thing to say, but not when you think about it in terms of, of Ezekiel 33. He says, therefore I testify to you this day, and he says, that I am innocent of the blood of all. And why was he innocent of the blood of all? He says, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So in Paul's mind, this was Paul's thought. He viewed himself rightly, as an apostle, as being in line with the prophets. And he said, in his mind, if I don't tell the people everything God has said faithfully, then their blood, if they fail to repent, is on my head or on my hands. And he says, I am innocent of the blood of all because he did not shrink back from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. There are things in God's word you may not realize, maybe you do understand. There are many things in God's word that would cause many a preacher to shrink back. Because they're not popular. I would say books like Joel, the message of Joel was probably not a very popular message. And that same thing holds true, I think, for our day. If we, if we in the church fail to make God's word fully known in sincerity and in truth, if we fail to warn sinners of the judgment that is to come, we are guilty of their blood. Pastors, like myself, standing in pulpits all over the country, all over the world, if we don't warn people of the judgment to come, We are guilty of their blood if they fail to repent. We must never trifle with people's souls in the church. Making sinners comfortable, much less entertaining them, is must never be our goal. It must never be our manner of ministry. Rather, we must make the whole counsel of God known to everyone and let the chips fall where God wills. Let God do what he wants with his word. Our job is just to make God's word known and it's amazing how often God uh, turns sinners to himself and, and grants repentance and faith and saves them if we just give his word and preach it faithfully and share it faithfully. Well, here in chapter 2 of Joel, uh, the Lord is calling upon his people through his prophet Joel to blow a trumpet, verse 1, to blow a trumpet in Zion. This is a twofold use of the trumpet. He's calling them to gather together. He's, he's calling this, sounding the alarm also as well. Uh, for the judgment that is to come, uh, and the fact that the drought that they were experiencing, which we don't know how long it went on, but the, the drought and the locust swarms had destroyed all their crops. 
It had destroyed all the, all the grain, all the vines. Uh, everything was destroyed. And what he's telling them now, it may sound like adding insult to injury. He's saying, there's more to come. This isn't it. Imagine how unpopular that message would have been. He's saying, blow the trumpet. Everybody gather around. You know, revelly, revelly, you know, general quarters. Command your battle stations. But their battle station was at the, was at the temple. Come gather and listen to this. Uh, and he was warning them that there was a more severe judgment to come. Their current calamity, as awful as it was, remember it said in chapter 1, even the grain offering and the wine offering, the drink offering rather, were withheld from the house of God because they didn't have enough wine and grain. That, that's how bad it was that even the worship in the temple had basically all but ceased. And God is telling them through his prophet, it's going to get worse if you don't repent. That judgment, as bad as it was, it was a warning of judgment to come if they failed to repent. And so what I'd like to do, the first thing we see in our text this morning in verses 1 through 11 is a warning of the day of the Lord. A warning of the day of the Lord. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm. That's the use of the trumpet here. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness like blackness. There is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Now, just as we saw in the opening of the previous chapter in chapter 1, uh, that the locust swarm and the, the drought that had devastated the land of Judah was, remember it said in verses 1 and 2, that it was unlike anything there. the elders had seen before in all their lives, and it was unlike anything even the fathers in the previous generations of the elders had ever seen. In other words, no one, no one has ever seen anything like what had happened. And now he's saying a second time here in chapter 2, now the next judgment's going to be worse than that. It's, it too is going to be something you've never seen anything like it before. The day of the Lord, the day of God's coming in judgment upon even his people here, was going to come in the form of an invasion unlike anything they had ever seen before or would ever see again. That's what was coming. So the, the day of the Lord, you might know, is a pretty consistent theme in the prophets. It's a consistent theme throughout these three chapters of the book of Joel. He mentions the phrase, the day of the Lord, multiple, multiple times. Uh, it's found through many of the Old Testament prophets. The day of the Lord, what is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is, a, is, a, is the day of God's judgment. It is a day of God coming in judgment. And there have been multiple days of the Lord in that sense throughout the scriptures and throughout history. Anytime God judges, sometimes he judged through sending pestilence, like he has done in some ways in the world today. Sometimes he's, he judges by sending famine and drought. Sometimes he judges, and he has often in the scriptures, and I think throughout history as well, he has judged through sending ungodly nations, even upon his own people. The Babylonians, the Babylonian captivity, the Assyrians and other things in, in, the, in the scriptures, those were in a sense comings of the Lord. Now he didn't come bodily, you know, Christ had not come, he wasn't, it wasn't the return of Christ, but it's a coming of God in judgment. And the same kind of imagery is used whenever it's talked about in those ways. Much of the same kind of language is found throughout the Old Testament prophetic books. It's also found in the book of Revelation. 
these, these passages where it talks about clouds and darkness, blackness and gloom, the sun and the moon darkened and the stars not shining. You've, you've seen those kinds of passages before, and not just in the Old Testament, but in the book of Revelation as well. I invite you on your own time. I won't read them right now, but read uh, such things as Isaiah 13, 10, Ezekiel 32, verse 7, Matthew 24, verse 29, Revelation chapter 8, verse 12, and many other places where the Bible uses the same language to describe the coming of the Lord. And uh, some of those references are, are about the return of Christ when he comes in glory to judge the living and the dead. And so the Lord was coming in judgment upon his people in Judah for their idolatry, for their unfaithfulness, for their wickedness. And he sent the prophet Joel to warn them and to call them to repentance before it was too late. And, and why does God do that? Remember the book of Jonah? I mean, Jonah, you know, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. It was the most wicked, powerful nation on the earth at the time. It was the number one enemy of the people of God at the time. And, and so God sent Jonah there to warn them. And, and nowhere in the message that God gave Jonah do you see anything saying, hey, if you stop, if you repent, I will relent from sending the calamity that's to come. He sends Jonah, I'll skip the story about the, 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 great, the great storm, the great fish and all that. But what was Jonah's message? It was something like, 40 days and God's going to overturn this place. He's going to flip it over like a pancake. He's going to destroy the place. And what happened? You know, you, you would expect that Jonah would have been very eager to preach that message. Jonah hated Nineveh. And not, not without reason. They were a wicked people. They were, they were the threat to Israel. I think he knew in some ways God might use Nineveh and Assyria to chastise his own people. It would be very serious. It would be very, very violent, very brutal, uh, very, a very sad thing. But what happened? He gets halfway into his journey or a day's journey, I think it says, into, into his preaching. And his preaching was just, God's, God's going to destroy this place. And what happened? In the, the weirdest revival in history broke out. They, the king all the way down repented. They all fasted. They all sought the Lord and repented. And God showed mercy. And Jonah hated every minute of it. He sat there pounding on that, on the hillside. And, and God, what is God? And God showed him. And he even said, I, I'm paraphrasing this whole thing. Jonah said, I knew this was going to happen. I knew this was going to happen. And he uses the same kind of wording that Joel does here in kind of an ironic it's the only time I think in scripture where somebody complains that God is gracious and merciful and relents from disaster. He's like, I knew you were going to do this. I knew it. This, that's why he didn't want to go. It's, I always say it's the exact opposite of why we don't go. We don't go. We don't share the gospel. I don't share the gospel sometimes because I'm afraid God's, God's not going to do anything. Jonah's like, if I tell them this, they're going to repent. That's exactly what God worked in them. But, Ezekiel 33, verses 10 to 11. Uh, this, is, this is the rationale for God sending his prophet to warn of judgment. And that still holds true today. He says, Ezekiel 33, 10 to 11, And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, he's telling him, take a memo, here's what you say. Thus you have said, he's saying, here's what I've heard you, the people of Israel, say. Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? They're not wrong in the first half, right? The judgments of God upon them 
He says that our our, trend, our transgressions and our sins are upon us. They're, they've come home to roost. They're weighing on us. We're getting what we have coming. And they say, uh, we rot away because of them. This is it. And then they say, how then can we live? That wasn't the wrong question to ask. The, the manner in which they asked it was probably not the right way. But they say, no, there's nothing that can be done. Maybe you feel that way now with the way some things have been going, not just the pandemic, but the way our country has been going further and further from God, uh, even in the church in some ways. But this is what God says to them. He says, say to them, verse 11, as I live. They say, how can we live? And God says, as I live. You're forgetting about me. He says, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? That's why God sends his prophets, his messengers, even the apostles um, throughout scripture to warn of the judgment to come. Because the whole reason for sending the warning is he doesn't, in some sense, does not want to judge. He delights when they repent and live. If God wanted to judge Nineveh, and Jonah knew this, did God have to send Jonah? Was God sending Jonah or any prophet because he just wanted to twist the knife? Is that what God does? Does God, is God, you know, do we picture God like Jonah on the hill, waiting for the show, waiting for the fire to come down and, yeah, burn? No, that's not what he says at all. He says he does not delight. Uh, in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure. It doesn't mean he won't judge. God is holy. God is just. God is not embarrassed by his holiness. God is not embarrassed by his just and holy judgment. He will, Christ will return one day to judge the living and the dead. That is the truth of scripture that we must uh, believe and profess and tell people of. But he doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. But what does Ezekiel 33 say that he does take pleasure in? There's a contrast there. He doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He takes pleasure. He does take pleasure. He says that the wicked turn from his way and live. God takes pleasure in that. And we should as well. And this is why the prophet of the Lord must be faithful in warning the people of the judgment to come. It's not a popular message, but it's a message that pleases God and that God is often pleased to use to turn the sinner from his sin and from death that they might have even as we looked at in John 17, eternal life, that they may turn from their sin and live and have eternal life through Christ. Now, it's not entirely clear, at least to the present preacher and to many commentators, what exactly was entailed in this day of the Lord that was being warned of. Uh, there's a lot of different views or a number of different views on what this was. Uh, we don't know exactly what Joel was warning them that was to come, but they probably had some inkling of what it was. Some some see it, uh, and Calvin, um, of, of no less, uh, saw it as the coming of a great invading army, maybe the Babylonians, or as Calvin thought, the Assyrian army. There's a lot of army kind of language here in, in the chapter. Others see it as perhaps another even greater locust plague. It's hard to imagine a greater plague than the one they already had. But um, personally, I'm, I, I guess I'm going to play it safe and say I'm somewhere in the middle of those two opinions, but... I tend to lean towards the latter, that it may be something more like the locust plague, because he says things like in verse 5, that this invading force was going to be, quote, the way the ESV puts it, like 
a powerful army. Well, if it's an army, it's not like a powerful army. It's, it's an army. He's saying that whatever was coming was as if it was an invading army drawn up for battle. It was as if they were soldiers armed. It was as if they had chariots. Uh, he doesn't say that there were chariots, so I'm, I tend to think it was something other uh, than that. But whatever the case may be, this was a judgment of God upon the people, his chastisement upon them. And this day of the Lord, he says in verse 10, 11, rather, was so great and very awesome that no one could hope to endure it. Something was coming that was going to wipe the rest of it out, that they could not hope to endure. They were able to endure so far. As bad as things were, and it was bad, they were able to kind of withhold it, withstand it. And he's saying the thing that's coming next, no one's going to be able to endure it. God's, God's judgments in this life, this is not just an Old Testament thing, this is not just an ancient history thing, God's judgments in this life are not to be despised, they're not to be ignored or downplayed. They're meant to turn people back to God. His judgments, just like the ones in Joel's day, and we must think about this, we must think Christianly, biblically like about these things ourselves too, God's judgments in this life are a foreshadowing of the ultimate day of the Lord when Christ shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. They are, you could, you could think of them as warning shots that God still judges, even as the, the flood of Noah's day was a, is a proof. The New Testament reminds us of that. People say, where's the promise of his coming? Peter says, and what does he say? What does he point us to? You forgot about this little thing called the flood. He didn't call it a little thing, but God has judged in spectacular fashion before, and one day he will do a judgment that will put all those things to shame. Well, the second thing in our text, in verses 12 through 17, first you had the warning of the day of the Lord. The next thing you have is the call to repent and return to the Lord. In many ways, I think this is the central message of our text. I think in some ways it's not... Exactly in the middle, but I think these these verses are the central message of the entire book of Joel. Verses 12 through 17. Look at verses 12 to 13. Joel there writes, remember he just said this day of the Lord is coming and no one's going to be able to endure it. And he says, yet even now, declares the Lord, even after everything that's happened, even after, you know, in light of the fact of what's coming, God still has an offer of mercy. He says, Yet even now declares the Lord, and what does he say? Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, and why is that? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding. It doesn't just say he has steadfast love. He's abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Yet even now, that's what he says. Despite their wickedness and sin, despite their judgments that they had endured from the hand of God and the judgments that were now even now being threatened as near, right? The day of the Lord is at hand. It's, it's right around the corner, God is saying. Like you could practically see it coming over the hill. And he says, even now, even now, if they turn from their sin and turn back to God, God is a God who relents. He doesn't just cast them away. They might have thought that God is just done with us. He's just casting us away. and he's, He didn't do that. He calls upon them instead to repent. 
And he calls upon the people to repent in a, in a I think, a, a, a marvelous and beautiful way. You know, what does it mean to repent? That might be something that you know, some of you listening at home uh, that maybe don't come to our church on a regular basis because of distance and things. Um, maybe you, uh, not to critique other churches, but you know, maybe repentance and the idea of the message of repentance is not something you have heard very often. And that's probably, sadly, very often the case because it's not a popular message. No one likes to be told that they're wrong. No one likes to be told to repent and that judgment is coming. But what does it mean to repent? To repent is to turn from wickedness and sin. To repent is to turn from wickedness and sin, not just in our hearts, but also in our lives. Repenting is turning from sin and turning back to God. They're two sides of the same coin, so to speak. Uh, you know, but here the Lord states this in terms not just of turning, not just of repenting, although it's the same word, to turn or to repent. He states it in terms of returning to him. He doesn't just say, like, you know, you see the, the stereotypical person with the sign on the street, the end is near, you know, repent. Uh, he says, return to me. Not just turn, not just turn or burn, return to, come back to me. You're, their sin meant they were going that way when God was this way. And he's saying, return to me. And then in verse 13 he says, again, return, not just return to the Lord, return to the Lord your God. I'm your God. Return back to me, to your God who has saved you by his grace and made you his own people. The, the Lord appeals to the people to repent and to return to him with all their hearts in verse 12. And the reason that they were encouraged to return to him in verse 13, he says, is precisely because he is what? It's the character of God. God is telling them what he, he's reminding them of what he is like as a motive to repent. He says, because they are to return to him because he is gracious, because he is merciful, because he is slow to anger. It may not have felt like he was slow to anger, but I, I, I have to feel it. I have to think that just like in our own day, his judgments are slow. When they get there, they get there. Uh, God, in our case, God could have judged our nation decades ago. Just for abortion. He could have turned this thing over like a pancake and we would have deserved every last bit of it. And yet God has been slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He has given us time to repent. And that is the same thing he tells his people through Joel. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. And then what does he add? He relents over disaster. Sending the disaster, the judgment, is not his main goal. His goal is that his people would return to him in repentance. Now, that, that's the remedy. He's giving them the remedy. You want to stop this day of the Lord? You want to prevent that from coming to pass? You want to see the Lord relent from sending disaster? Then return to God. Turn back to the Lord. And not just outwardly or formally. We're good at that. I'm good at that. You're probably good at that too. We're all good at the outward show of repentance and formality. That's what he means when he says in verse 13, rend or tear. Tear your hearts, not your garments. You know, when one of the things that they used to do was if they, if they were upset or grieving over something, people would tear their clothing. You know, when, when I was a kid, the only person I saw did that was Hulk Hogan. He would tear his shirt off, you know. Well, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, rend, you know, stop messing with your clothes. 
And it's not that rending their clothing was a bad thing to do or wearing sackcloth and ashes was a bad thing to do. We, you know, some churches celebrated Ash Wednesday in recent, uh, about a month or so ago. Uh, and not saying that they're not sincere, anybody who does that, but, but it's as if he's saying, you know, stop putting ashes, I'm paraphrasing, stop putting ashes on and grieve here. Actually, actually grieve and not just the outward show of it. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Uh, James Boyce puts it well. He says, God wants us to be heartbroken over sin. How many of us can honestly say we're heartbroken over our sin, over our nation's sins? We're upset, maybe. Are we heart? Do I, do I weep every? I don't. We should. He's saying, rend your hearts and not your garment. Make it real. From the heart, turn back to God. I think this also shows us that the people to whom Joel was preaching as the prophet, they weren't necessarily irreligious. It wasn't that they weren't religious people. It wasn't that they had stopped going to the temple. It wasn't that they ceased doing the things they were supposed to do at the temple. They probably, when they could, were still making the offerings and sacrifices and everything else they were supposed to do. It wasn't even that they were, you know, it, they may not have been completely oblivious to God's judgments. He's, he does say blow the trumpet, so maybe in some regard they were, but they might not have been entirely deaf and blind to what was going on. Maybe they had actually torn their garments. I think that's kind of the implication here. Maybe they had actually shown some outward measure of grief by tearing their garments, by going through the motions of mourning, like, oh, this is terrible, we should all we should all grieve. And God says that's not enough. God desired real heartfelt grief over sin and repentance and returning to him from the heart. Notice that the main thing was to return to God and to grieve over our sins and not necessarily to get back what they lost. Sometimes that's still where I feel like I am in this whole thing that we're going through in our country. And look at verse 14, Joel says, Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. He doesn't say God's absolutely going to do that. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace? Before they got thrown in, they, I'm paraphrasing, apologize for that, but uh, they say, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. Who knows? The main objective shouldn't be, we just want to get things back to normal. I do want things to get back to normal, but maybe not the same normal it was before. We must not presume on the temporal blessings of the Lord or make them our primary goal. There's nothing wrong with us wanting those things. God talks about those things in the rest of the chapter. Our attitude should be that of Joel. Who knows whether he will not turn? He wants us to turn, and who knows whether or not he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Even that desire for blessing, in, uh, think about this, that desire for blessing that even they talked about here in verse 14 involved the worship of God first and foremost. It doesn't say who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing that will have all of our stuff. It says, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. He'll restore worship. He'll restore even the offerings at that time in the temple. 
you know, as much as, as you and I might want things to get back to normal, and believe me, I do, uh, I miss all kinds of things just like you do, is, is that the outward thing that we desire most, that public worship of the Lord on his day might be fully restored? Is that the thing that grieves you most? I hope it is. I love baseball. I miss baseball. I miss going to movies. I miss just being able to sit in a restaurant with my family and not have to sit in the van to eat. I miss the gathered church. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll keep hitting this drum over and over again. Um, every member of our church is essential, not just the guy standing behind the pulpit, the person playing the piano, the singers, people. The church is essential. The gathered church is essential, and I, I hope and you, I hope that you are praying as I am that that might be the thing that God restores first and foremost. That we might gather together, together for worship of God. That we might give Him thanks together. We might celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And if so, if that's if that's where your heart is this morning, if that's the thing that you're praying for most as a sign of God turning and leaving a blessing behind Him, I think maybe that's. The case that maybe that we really are starting to show some signs of a true repentance among us in our land, especially in the church. Well, we must mourn for our sin. The prophet says we must pray together. We must even fast. You know, Calvin in his commentary on on these verses. This, everything I do this morning is a paraphrase. I apologize, but uh, I should have quoted it. But it was a long quote. He basically says, and I sympathize with this. I identify with it. the fact that fasting seems like such an odd thing to us in the church in our day. And this is Calvin saying it in the 1500s, the 16th century, shows how far, he says, we have fallen from a right understanding of how God deals with nations and peoples and, and people and the way that God's people has always responded uh, when they responded in a right way, that we mourn and we even fast and declare a fast and pray as his people uh, and God shows mercy. And look at how Joel tells the priest to pray in verse 17. He says, he says, between the vestibule and the altar, when I, when I read that, I think it sounds like the priest is on his way to his job, on his way to the part of the temple he'd normally work in, and he doesn't even get that far. He's not even to the altar. There's nothing to offer right at the moment. But he says, between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep. Let them weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make, your, make not your heritage a reproach. A byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, "Where is their God?" How you know if they serve the one true living God? Look at all this stuff's happening. Where's their God in all this? That's what the unbelieving nations, the pagans, the heathens would say. The glory of God's name must be the chief concern in our prayer. That's what Joel instructs the priests to do. There. Even in times of calamity and chastisement and judgment from God, we must pray that God spare, not just spare us, but spare his people. What does he say? Spare your people, O Lord. Not just spare people. Spare your people. They belong to you. They're called by your name, right? Spare his people and make not his heritage. The church, the people of God, for good or bad, are God's heritage. They are his, in some ways, his inheritance. His name is attached to us in our baptism. And so things that reproach that comes to us in some way reflect on God is what he's saying in his prayer. Make not your heritage a reproach, reproach, lest the heathen who hate and scoff the Lord say, where is your God? In other words, the unbelievers, the heathen, the pagans, 
those those who practice false religion, they'll say, see, all their talk about God is nonsense. And he's telling the priests, pray this way. Pray that for God, the glory, for the sake of the glory of God's name, have mercy and spare your people. And part of that sparing is turning us and granting repentance. Well, that brings us to the last thing in our text, and I wish I could spend more time upon it this morning. In verses 18 to 32, uh, we show, the prophet tells us, of the outpouring of the mercies of God in response to his people's repentance. The outpouring of the mercies of the Lord. Uh, because God would once again, he says in verse 18, be jealous for his land. Jealous for his land and have pity on his repentant people. Then he would, what does he tell them he's going to do? Then he's going to drive out their enemies in verse 20. He's going to restore the pastures even that the beasts of the field, verse 22, would be able to have pasture land again. God is not even unmindful of the animals. And he says in verse 23, he would bring gladness and joy back to the children of Zion. He would answer their cries for mercy. He would heal their land. And he says he would send, quote, early rain, abundant rain, the early and latter rain as before in verse 23. The drought was going to be over. It reminds you, reminds me of the days of Elijah when it didn't rain for three and a half years. And then Elijah prayed again and what happened? A little bitty wisp of a cloud came over the horizon and then rain came. And God says he's going to restore that rain to then pour out those rains upon the land. And in doing that, what does he tell them in verse 25? He says in doing that, he's going to what? Restore the years that the locusts have eaten. It must have been a heck of a drought. It must have been some kind of famine and drought in the land for it to be described of as years. God was going to restore even that by the rain he was going to send. He says in verse 26, they were going to eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord their God. Even even in their plenty, and they're celebrating over the return of that plenty, was to be for God's glory and God's praise. Not only would God pour out rain on the land and, and heal the land and, and restore things to the people, but he also promises here in our text something more important than pouring out rain. He talks about pouring out in promises and prophecies, pouring out his spirit upon the people. As important as the rain on the land is, the pouring out of God's spirit on his people is even more important you, know, you might know that Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter spoke of this directly and quotes the book of Joel in, in, in this passage about it. He says the things that happened on Pentecost in Jerusalem were the fulfillment, the beginning of that very thing spoken of by Joel here in our text. And think about the situation they were in. That was the real need. The greatest need, as much as they needed it for the people in, in Joel's day, wasn't rain. They needed rain or they were going to die. But they needed something else poured out, really someone else poured out more than they needed rain. They needed the Holy Spirit poured out on all flesh. It's not just the prophets of the Lord and others. Think, you know, in the Old Testament, before the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit indwelled God's people. The Holy Spirit was given uh, above measure in some cases to prophets and kings and certain people for their jobs uh, that they were to do. But in the New Testament, in, in after Christ's ascension, the Holy Spirit is poured out beyond measure upon all people. In fact, in Acts, Peter says this was, quote, what was uttered through the prophet Joel there in that in our text. And then he tells that crowd, Peter does, in, in the rest of the sermon, that it was because Christ died on the cross, rose again on the third day, 
that he was exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out, there's the phrase, this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, Acts 2.33. What's he saying? He's saying because of Christ's death on the cross, his victory over sin, his resurrection from the dead, that because of that, because of his victory over those things, he was rewarded with the Holy Spirit beyond measure in order to pour the Holy Spirit himself out upon his people. Christ won all these benefits. We sang a song this morning, How Vast the Benefits Divine. Christ purchased all those benefits for us on his cross and in his resurrection on our behalf. And one of those greatest benefits was even pouring out his spirit upon us. That's that's what's prophesied hundreds of years before it took place here in the book of Joel. The context of one of God's greatest promises of mercy comes in the context of this one of these great acts of judgment upon his people. That's how gracious and merciful our God is that we serve. And just as both Joel and the Apostle Peter puts it in verse 32, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so I ask this morning, have you turned, have you turned from your sin and called upon Jesus for salvation from your sins? No matter what you have done, no matter how great the weight of your sins is, God stands willing to save. John 6.37 there, Jesus himself says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Talk about election again, it's everywhere. Uh, but he says, And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All, even you if you come to Christ. Even you will never be cast out if you come to Christ by faith for salvation. May we learn, too, the lessons of the prophet Joel in our text as they apply to us as well as to the people in the Old Testament. May we humble ourselves and cry out to God in prayer and repentance that he might hear from heaven, forgive our sins, and heal our land to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's, let's pray.